Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the LSE. If you're students and staff at the, the LSE, welcome. And if you're from outside and at the LSE, we're very pleased to see you. We're very pleased to see all of you. We're delighted that you've come to attend this event. Uh, my name's uh, Janet Hartley. I'm the Pro Director Teaching and Learning at the LSE, one of three Pro Directors uh, at the school. I'm delighted to welcome you to the opening night of the LSE's fourth literary festival, uh, which began at lunchtime today with a lecture by Professor Roger Scruton, and then will conclude Saturday evening. There are still some tickets left for events, so please, if, if you're interested, do look at the full festival programme if you haven't done so already. This year's theme, as I'm sure you know, is Relating Cultures. And we continue our exploration of the relationship between the arts and the social sciences, as well as the interaction between global cultures and also the power of communication, language and storytelling. We're delighted to start the festival off with a real bang this evening uh, to welcome two eminent authors, A.S. Byatt and Robert Irwin, tonight to discuss Myths for a Modern World. And in the moment, in a moment, I will hand over to the chairman, Dr. Matthew Ingelka from the Anthropology Department here at the LSC. Just to say, though, the most important thing, in a way, uh, The Guardian described the LSE's literary festival as more cerebral than other champagne-swilling affairs. <laughs> well, I'm sorry about that. There's no champagne-swilling, but we do invite you for a drink after this event. And after this event, uh, the authors will also be signing copies of their books outside the theatre. So, Welcome again to the LSE, and I will pass you over to the chair, Matthew Ingelka. Well, thank you all for coming tonight. Uh, it's it's a, a real pleasure uh, for me to be able to chair this event. Um, I was uh, telling Antonia and Robert that I think um, they asked me because of the people at the LSE who talk about myths. It would have to be someone from the anthropology department. Um, you will be hearing a bit about Levi-Strauss, uh, although um, they looked a bit uh, <laughs> disappointed about that. Um, but um, A.S. Byatt, of course, uh, needs no uh, introduction. Um, but it is worth uh, pointing out that she is uh, an incredibly renowned uh, novelist and short story writer who has now given us uh, an absolutely beautiful uh, retelling of this uh, myth. Her novels include uh, the Booker Prize winning Possession, of course, as well as the biographer's tale, and most recently the children's book, which was published in 2009. She's also, of course, a distinguished critic and was appointed CBE in 1990 and DBE in 1999. Uh, the book that we'll be talking about tonight is in the Canongate uh, Myths series and uh, as Janet mentioned it will be available outside for sale and she will be signing copies. Um, I should say as well if you haven't had a chance to, to, to look at the book um, it's not only beautifully told but beautifully produced. It's an absolutely wonderful physical object in itself, and I think that's very important in today's day and age. Uh, Robert Irwin is joining us as well, uh, and he is uh, a publisher and writer of both fiction and nonfiction. 
He's best known in the nonfiction arena for books such as For Lust of Knowing the Orientalists and Their Enemies, The Middle East in the Middle Ages, and The Arabian Nights, A Companion, as well as many more uh, specialized studies in Middle Eastern politics, art, and mysticism. His most recent book is Memoirs of a Dervish, uh, and it explores uh, his uh, experiences in Algeria in the 1960s. Um, I understand that both Antonia and her sister have listed it as a book of the year, so it comes highly recommended. Um, so, shifting now to the conversation, uh, what we intend to do is take um, about 35 minutes of discussion between Antonia and, and Robert, uh, and then open it up to questions uh, from the floor. Um, so I wanted to start, I mentioned, um, of course, as an anthropologist, um, myths occupy a special place in my disciplinary imagination. Um, but maybe we can start by uh, talking a bit about how you came to choose this particular format. Uh, you mention at the end of the book in a section called Thoughts on Myth um, that unlike the other uh, writers who have contributed to this series, um, you wanted to preserve something of the, of the structure of, of a myth rather than getting the myths out of the myths into more novel-like formats. And I wondered if, if you could reflect on, your, uh, on the rationale for that. Um, well, I was quite excited by the idea of a series of myths written by writers. Um, but I was excited because precisely myths are not fiction. And it seemed to me important to be able to tell a myth in such a way that you could see it was a different kind of story. And for a long time, I, I knew immediately which myth. I wanted the myth, the Norse myth, in which every single god gets killed at the end and can't ever come back. Um, that this story ends with all the gods having been killed on the last day. Um, Odin, the king of the gods, has been swallowed by the wolf and Thor, the thunderer, has been hissed to death with poison by the serpent. And the book I read as a child, which affected me more than almost any other book I ever read, said that after that there was nothing except a flat black lake under a black sky with a few gold chessmen glittering in the dark. And then it said, of course, there are versions which produce a Christian second coming. And I thought, no. This is a good story because, and I must have been five or six, um, this is a good story because it ends. Um, so that's why I picked it. And then I found it quite hard to work out how to tell it because I didn't want to write biblically and I didn't want to write in high-flying language. I didn't want to humanize it because it isn't human. And so in the end, I ended up um, talking about the child I was during the Second World War, discovering this myth, these Norse myths, for herself in a book actually written for grown-ups, which my mother gave me. And that gave me the distance on it. It gave me the sort of sense of the mystery of seeing this different kind of story. 
So technically, it's a story of a child reading and the myth that she reads. Mm. Yeah, um, I, of course, have read and admired this book. Um, I think what you get, what I got from it, was a, a kind of stereoscopic effect in that you've got the young girl in the north of England reading the Norse myths in the specific German text and relating it to the bleakness of wartime in Britain, austerity, the absence of her father, rumours of bombings elsewhere. And at the same time, or rather interleaving that, there's, another, there's an adult narrator with an enormously rich, rich vocabulary who is relating Norse myths not to wartime anymore, but to the, the possible collapse of a, a global ecosystem. Uh, so that the, the great tree Yggdrasil, if that's how it's pronounced, is, is a kind of metaphor for the way the world works in, and so on. Um, and so, so you get this two people, two quite, really two quite different people, in chronologically, presumably they're connected, uh, having quite diff make, making use of the Norse myths in different ways. And then I thought, well, this can't be the way the Norse did it. I mean, the Norsemen can't have been worrying about the collapse of coral reefs and diminishing rainforests or even uh, fewer, fewer cod to catch in the fish in the sea. Uh, what, what, was, what did they want this myth for? Why would they pick so, so, something so horribly doomy? <laughs> have you a view? Um, I think partly because of the landscape they lived in. Mm. If you go to Iceland, there are not many animals and there are not many plants, and there's a great deal of drinking and a great deal of laughing and a great <laughs> deal of fighting. And, and they made a mythical world out of this. And part of me has, a, as you remarked, I have a romantic need to think of myself as a northerner. I'm not that sort of northerner, but my part of Yorkshire was settled by the Danes. Mm. And, it, it, and also, it did provide me a way out of Christianity. But um, I think I, every time I reread this myth, I dislike the gods more. There isn't, there's only one likable character, and he's the villain. <laughs> I, um, yeah, could I go into something personal here? I, I actually started a novel which I was going to call Ragnarok. It aborted uh, about ten years ago. It was going to be about the, um, the return of the old gods, the Germanic Norse gods, to Germany in the 1930s. One could see how that might play. Um, <laughs> but the, the novel wasn't working. Uh, the plot was terrible. I, it was right out of control. And the ma one of the main reasons it was out of control was that the character who was reincarnating Loki the god of mischief, kept taking the story over. He kept yeah. in, invading the story and, and making things happen, and all the other characters were getting pushed aside, so I, I lost my novel. Mm. He's the only one with any intelligence. He's mm. the only one who can change shape. Mm. And mm. I suddenly realised, half the way through writing it, that, of course, he's a specialist in chaos. So I, I mm. turned him into a kind of primeval chaos theorist. And, um, mm. um, and he studies... Just out of interest, he studies the shape, the shapeless shape of flames and mm. the nature of waterfalls, and um, which he did. I mean, both those things were what he was interested in. That's that's the good thing about it. But um, mm. could I say yeah, something? Yeah. Um, uh, while I was doing some frantic research for this evening, I came across a novel 
by, I think, Marie Phillips, published a few years back, called God's Behaving Badly, in which Artemis is a dog walker, um, Aphrodite is a, does sex on the telephone, Dionysus runs a nightclub, that kind of thing. It doesn't sound a very serious novel. I haven't read it. It might be very serious. But the gods have fallen on hard times, and they're living in London and doing seedy things. Um, <laughs> but it's the title that struck me. Why do the gods behave badly? Mm. And I think it's because the gods are stories, and if they don't behave badly, there is no story. Mm. Do you think I'm right or wrong? I think you're right. Well, I wonder, I mean, this, this um, picks up on, on uh, something. I, I mean, I certainly, I, I've never found the, 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 the gods um, particularly compelling. Loki certainly the most interesting. But I wonder if it has something to do with something you, you say, which is that mythical figures have attributes rather than personalities. Um, but, uh, and, and that there's no psychology in myths. That's one of the things that you, uh, that, that you mentioned. I, I wonder if this plays into um, the, I mean, is there a, there, there's not a flatness to these gods, um, but they don't have the kinds of personalities that we might find in, in, in the novel. And I wonder, um, as a writer, how that different kind of structural character um, shaped the way in which you could, could write? When I was a little girl, um, when I finished my homework too early, I was sent to the cupboard to read books. There were, there was a cupboard <coughs> of books. And among all the books, there were retellings for children of the Greek myths. And these, in fact, had been made human. Mm. You know, they told you a lot about the feelings. I mean, I, I was worried about the feelings of Ceres searching for Persephone. Um, but I wasn't very worried about quite a lot of the sort of fighting gods. Mm. Um, and something felt wrong. I mean, I may, that may be hindsight. I may be noticing that with hindsight. Mm. But when my mother gave me this great fat German book about the Norse gods, and it never said what they felt, it just said what they did and what followed from that and what followed, I felt, I, f I suppose I thought a myth is an account of the nature of things. Mm. And Karen Armstrong says, I think quite rightly, that people invented myths because they couldn't stand not understanding. And they humanized the universe by telling a story which explained the nature of death. And my, I'm not an anthropologist, but mm. my, my own sense of it is that once human beings started realizing that there were people around who were certainly dead, but somehow they were still around, they started making a world of people who weren't there and from there to invent powerful beings who controlled the wind and the rain and the floods and the salmon was better than not knowing what the hell anything was mm. um, and I then it wore out well I wonder this is um, I'm, I'm gonna uh, maybe this will be the only time I do this but here's where Levi Strauss can come in of course um, I mean in a sense uh, you know bringing up Karen Armstrong's point raises a very important point that Levi Strauss says about myth, which he, he, he it just I just happen to have the quote here. Uh, <clears throat> he says, the kind of logic in mythical thought is as rigorous as that of modern science, and the difference lies not in the quality of the intellectual process, but in the nature of things to which it is applied. And it seems to me that part of what you're 
saying, that, you know, myths are about explaining the world, making sense of things, is also true of, of, of science or the applications of, of science. Our, our desire to know how things work. I wonder what you would think about that. I, I'm really rather hostile to it. It does <laughs> remind me of a mutual friend of ours, Kevin Jackson, who maintains that the only exact science is heraldry. Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't think that myths are that logical. Um, for a start, they're full of contradictions and variations. There are all sorts of ways that Ariadne comes to an end. Myths are messy. I, I, I don't think they are a tool of scientific investigation. I think mm. that's a very academic way of looking at things. Mm. I think also Levi-Strauss is, in, is I, I may be wrong, but is looking at the working of myths in certain societies in which the myths still are the concrete that holds the society together. And they're to do with family relationships mm. of a very complicated kind <coughs> and social structures of a very complicated kind. And I think the myths I came to when I came to them as a child, had already undergone romanticism. Mm. I mean, these, these North myths had undergone the Goethe Demerol. Mm. And the Goethe Demerol is not a belief system, but it's related to something that once was a belief system. Mm. It's a kind of, I mean, well, God knows what Wagner thought he believed. Mm. And Nietzsche came to believe that he, Nietzsche, was Dionysus. He, he signed his later letters Dionysus. Um, <laughs> Um, there's a kind of area between belief and non-belief where the structure is more art than science, mm. but nevertheless more than just me inventing a story mm. from scratch and writing it down, because these are old stories that a lot of other people... Mm. And one of the things I like to say, one of, my moment, one of my great moments of revelation was when I went to Ephesus and I saw the Diana of Ephesus and she had all these breasts. And somebody wrote me a very l angry letter saying these are not breasts, they're some sort of mushroom. Um, but they are, as far as I'm concerned, breasts. They are multiplied breasts. And I looked at her and she looked at me or over me. And I thought, my God, she is much more real than I shall ever be. More people have believed in her. More people have thought about her. More people have related to her than will ever have any relation to me. And there she stood. And then I understood what the life of a myth in the modern world was. She was still there. Mm. So, uh, um, I, 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 so, so what can we do? I mean, the title of this event is, you know, Myths for uh, a Modern Age, right? I think that's the title, is it? Mm. Um, yes. So what, 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 what role do they play? Should, I mean, what, what kind of uh, mythical thinking should be cultivated or um, celebrated, and, and, and how? Goodness, I have no idea. I, obviously, I should, since I'm sitting here. Um, it, it, obviously, it strikes me that um, almost everybody in the Western world, at least, comes to myths as children. And then, unless they happen to be academics or novelists, uh, myths are gone. They're forgotten about. You never see them again. So. There are a lot to do with forming child, child's minds. Um, my thread here. Um, beyond that, <coughs> no, mm. 
Um, <laughs> well, I was thinking about modern America. Oh, I know what I want to say. You finished what Sorry. you wanted to say. Sorry, yes. I mean, it's at that, um, then I started to think about novelists who've actually worked with myth uh, in the last half century or so. Uh, John Updike with Centaur, um, Lawrence Norfolk with In the Shape of a Boar, uh, Alan Garner with Weird Stone of Rising Arnhem, uh, James Joyce's Ulysses, uh, Calasso's Cadmus and Harmony, and so on. I got a list of about 20 fairly fast, and if I sat down and thought harder and researched more on Google and so on, I'd get a few hundred. But it is only a few hundred. There, there are not that many novelists who are relating to myths in a direct way, mm. at least until Canongate got going with its mm. series. Mm. Um, have you read um, Gods of America? No. Which I think is sometimes also published as American Gods by Neil Gaiman. No. Um, it's the most extraordinary book about how the Norse gods have had to emigrate to America <laughs> and nobody recognises who they are and they're trying to run a conspiracy to get back power mm. and they're all disguised as somebody else and it, I mean if you want a great big sort of science fiction of course is where myths are creeping in mm. and as Karen Armstrong also says myths creep in on the internet mm. and it, when I was horrified when I tried to google Ragnarok mm. I got endless Swedish heavy metal bands, <laughs> endless sort of war games yeah. on a peculiar level of belief. Mm. It's as though people still need the structures, mm. you know, even in very modern structures. Mm. It's, um, yes, it, it is quite major in science fiction, particularly Roger Zelazny's series of books, Lord of Light, he's dealt with Hindu mythology, Greek mythology and so on. And uh, Robert Holdstock's Mythago Wood is another major example of mm. playing around with myth in the world of science fiction. It does survive quite a lot in science mm. fiction. And it does survive because it's a human need. I mean, since it's a human need, I don't have, I only have it as an aesthetic need. Mm. I, I look at it with a kind of scholarly curiosity. Mm. Um, why do I need it so much? Because I don't believe it. And, and the myth I had the real problems with was the Christian myth, mm. which I came to dislike because people kept trying to make me believe it. Mm but it's not clear to me what a myth offers that's better than religion, what religion can offer. Are you a religious man? Y you know I am, from I know my you're book. A <laughs> you wrote the memoirs of a dervish. Yes. And um, I mean, that's partly why I wanted to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, have, you know what belief is. I, I simply don't. Well, it, it, at least with belief, I have the possibility... Well, no, surely the certainty of an afterlife, the, the myths don't seem to offer that. Mostly not, no. Well, I'm not, not clear what they do offer, mm. apart from excellent material for, for fiction. Well, mm. the Norse myth, if you're a warrior, offers you the chance to eat the same boar every day, and when you've eaten it, it will be reconstituted by tomorrow, so you can eat it again. And in the interim, you play chess with gold pieces. Uh, this is a really wonderful afterlife. Mm. Uh, yeah, no, 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 wait a minute, though. That, that's Valhalla, and it's just a waiting room before you go out and all get killed, and your death is certain. That is also the case. Any ordinary person just becomes <laughs> very, very shadowy and goes underground. Mm. Yeah. So, so can there, I mean, you've brought up um, Christianity uh, several times, and of course you, you bring it up in the um, thoughts on myth as well. Um, you say, I didn't believe in the Norse gods, and indeed use my sense of their world to come to the conclusion that the Christian story was another myth, the same kind of story about the nature of things, but less interesting and less exciting. Um, it's interesting because Anglican bishops tend to get in trouble every 
uh, 10 or so years by raising that word myth. Uh, and um, of course, but, uh, but I wonder if there is a, uh, I mean, I'm not a religious, uh, a religious person, although I study religious people. And I, 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 I do think I would want to insist on a difference between um, the Bible or a scripture and, 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 and a myth. And I wonder if the issue of belief really comes in here. I mean, how, how is the idea of belief in, in, in important for you here? I mean, you began by saying that myths are not fiction and have been suggesting, I think, that they're kind of, conveniently enough, an anthropology. <laughs> you know, there are a way of making sense of the world, making sense of why, where does the sun go, right? Why does it rain? Um, all sorts of things. Does it explain those things? I, Pierre Vane wrote a famous book, Did the Greeks Believe in Their Gods? And the, the answer he comes up with is profoundly ambiguous. Um, mm. And one could ask, did the Norse believe in their gods? Mm. Um, and so do they explain anything? I, I, I doubt if anybody sat down, oh, that's the way the sun goes out, because some serpent's eating it or whatever, the, the mm. mythical explanations. I, I can't see that. Mm. Um, yes, I'm not sure that belief is very important in mythology. I'm not sure it's clear that the ancient people <coughs> did believe in their myths. Mm. I don't think they necessarily believe. Marvellous image, this boat made of dead men's fingernails. It's a terrific thing to think of. If I'd thought of it, I think I'm a genius as a writer. But to believe in it is a, is a fact. Mm. It's got magic in it there, of course, mm. because dead men's fingernails are very dangerous things in mm. magic, which is a different thing from mythology. Yeah. Um, you, you mustn't let anyone get your fingernails, mm. or they, can, they have power over you, so mm. I read in the fairy stories. Um, it's interesting. I think the child I was went to church on Wednesday and Sunday and was told that, of course, everybody believed and that she would believe and that she would pray to this figure in whom she naturally believed. And the church was full, not of these sort of terrifying pictures that have managed to get reproduced in here, of um, horrible rocks and frightening surf. It was full of this sweetly simpering man standing under a tree preaching to some rabbits. And I sort of looked at this and I thought, what am I meant to be believing? And then finally I got told about the crucifixion. And I was a very logical child and I thought, I don't believe in a God that wants his son to be killed to save everybody. A, because I don't see how his son being killed would save everybody. B, I don't see why he would want to kill his son, can't he do it some other way? Um, and, and then I thought, and if this is what happened, I am in a terrible world, and everything anybody says is good to me is exactly ungood. Mm -hmm. And at this point, this terrible story began mm. to take possession of me. I, mm. I've slightly tidied up the narrative, but mm. um, this seemed to me a terrible story that bore some relation to, to being alive in the Second World War. Mm. You know, the end was coming. Mm -hmm. You've sort of gone in an opposite trajectory from C.S. Lewis, who became obsessed with Norse mythology after seeing Rackham's <laughs> illustrations to the story of Siegfried and Goethe Demerung and the wonderful bleakness of the landscape, and then he becomes obsessed with the story of Boulder, the dying god, and then he falls in with the inklings, and Lewis is just raving on about his, he was an atheist at the time, about this wonderful mythology, and eventually Tolkien rounded on him and said, why cannot you believe in Christianity as a myth that is true? Mm. And so Lewis suddenly took the leap. 
As the child that I was, read a lot of C.S. Lewis and hated him. The Narnia sack is dreadful. I read a thing called the Screwtape Letters, you know, which mm. is letters from the devil, mm -hmm. um, sort of saying all sorts of tempting things which you were meant to disbelieve. And I thought, you know, the devil has the right of it, and the author is just driving me in a direction I will not be driven in, which is what I always think about C.S. Lewis. Mm -hmm. so, um, Actually, what we're talking about is, is how you get hold of the minds of the young before mm. they have their minds developed. Mm. And um, so, is there is there a way in which the invitation to um, write this book, or retell this story, is there a way in which you saw this or experienced this as a way of um, coming to terms with, or um, at least um, or, or maybe reaffirming your 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 unbelief. I mean, what is the relationship between um, the interest in telling a myth and your very firm unbelief? Um, um, it's an well, it's an interest in human nature, really. Um, the ant expert E. O. Wilson who is one of the heroes of my life, once made a list of 20 things all human societies have, and 20 things all insects or ant societies have. And ants have various complicated pheromones and legs and carrying structures. And he said there is no human society without a myth and a religion. Um, and I observe this. It must matter. <coughs> it has to matter, or it wouldn't exist. Mm. But I observe it as a kind of, well, I'm not a scientist, I'm a writer. I observe it as somebody attempting to understand it mm. with the tools which I have. Mm -hmm. And this particular story has been trundling on in my mind all my life since I learned to read, really. Mm. And it was rather wonderful to be able to tell it as violently as possible. <laughs> <laughs> the myth to end all myths. I mean, if if E.O. Wilson is right, or if Levi Strauss is right, uh, that this is a, a kind of, uh, you know, universal feature of human cultures, and for Levi Strauss, an, an expression of the processes of thought. Um, shouldn't we, we? We must have to come to terms with it then, and accept that we will always live with myths. Or is this something that you want to resist, Antonia? Um. No, I think we always will live with myth. Look at the look at the Republicans in America. <laughs> I mean, look at what is happening over there. It's That's very real. It's not mythical at all, I'm afraid. <laughs> well, it depends which side of the Atlantic you are a bit. But um, no, it is very real, yeah. and it matters. Yeah. It is terribly real. Those are people who believe all that. Yeah. Um, the only religion I ever had was when I, I, was, uh, I was sort of attached to the Quakers for a long time. And if you sit and contemplate in silence, you don't have to believe anything. <laughs> and I thought I might join them, and I asked them if they were Christians, and they said yes, they were. So that was the end of that. Mm. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, it's not natural to behave like Quakers. It's natural to believe stories. I mean, you presumably also have layers of believed and unbelieved stories? Y yes. Um, I, uh, 
It's, it's tricky uh, with Islam. It, it's got a, a vast penumbra of cosmology and, and strange stories attached to it about the jinn and about the nature of the world and the scale of it and the, the fountain of eternal life. There's a whole area of Islam, it's apocrypha perhaps, which is about mythology and quite similar to um, the, uh, the, the other mythologies. Indeed, the, the long story of Bulakir in the Arabian Nights is, is all about cosmology and angels and jinn and the scale of the universe. And it clearly derives, and it's much more elaborated, from one of the very earliest myth stories. It's clearly based on and elaborated on from Gilgamesh. So there is all this in Islam, but at the other, on, on the other hand, Islam is just a little bit similar to the Quakers. It sounds very shocking to any Quakers in the audience, or <laughs> Muslims probably, in that there is a core of Islam that is quite minimalist, and um, Ernest Gellner <coughs> at the LSE has written quite a lot about this kind of minimalist, modern, modern form of Islam, that's very puritanical and, and very stripped down and very adaptable to the modern world. So... Um, Maybe I'll, I'll ask you one last question and then open it up to, to the floor. Um, if you were in charge of things, what, what would we do with myths? What, what, what role would they come to play? If we, if we can't get rid of them, what functions should they serve? You mentioned that for, for you, they are, that what's appealing to them is the aesthetics. Um, and it's just striking, you know, it's, it strikes me, clearly you are uh, um, compelled by myth in, in, in some ways. Um, otherwise you wouldn't write a book about it. Um, but so many of the, all the connotations of myth in, 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 in this modern secular world we inhabit are, are negative. Right? Myths are not true, myths are... Uh, the source of religious obscurantism. Myths are, as, as you point out, you know, I mean, if we connect this to, to Wagner and, and Germany in the 1930s, obviously nationalists have made great use of, of, of myth. Um, there seems to be a lot that's bad with myth, but what would you want to resuscitate from, from this particular genre? Um. I, I wrote a book once called The Jinn in the Nightingale's Eye about a narratologist who flew to Istanbul and met a jinn. And what I, what I think I wish is that everybody should study the nature of storytelling at all different levels. We should look at how children's stories are constructed and what children make of them. We should look at how political stories are constructed. We should understand that man is a storytelling animal. Yeah. And the study of myth would come into the structure of studying the storytelling animal. Mm. Um, I think that's what I do do, really. Mm. And you learn, I mean, the good thing about a degree in English literature is that you learn to be quite subtle about the indicators mm. of what kind of story it is. Mm. I mean, I'm sure so with Levi Strauss coming from elsewhere. but. You need to think about it. You need not just to gulp it all in. Mm. Um, and when you think about it, some stories are even more beautiful and even more amazing. I, I started with my Kindle yesterday afternoon. I was looking something up, and I started rereading Bleak House. Oh. Mm. And I can't stop. I just cannot stop. Mm. And it has much more effect on me than any myth, I think, except mm. possibly Ragnarok. Um, and it's a different effect. But it's as much part of me. Mm. 
And people ought to, A, have that, and B, attempt to understand that. Mm. You say, in the end, I'm a rational being and a scholarly creature. But, mm. um, and, and even with a small child, you should say, what's good about that story? Mm. You know, why do you like that one? What does it tell you about things? Mm. And you can even with quite small children say, what's the difference between Cinderella and the story of Ceres searching for Persephone? And, and they get it. Mm. Um, mm. And that tells you uh, there are no humans that don't tell stories. Mm. That is the way we make our world. Mm -hmm. So that's why we have to keep mm. on looking at myths. Mm. Just to say, myths are very eerie. Um, first you have at one level you have novels and short stories, they're by known authors usually. Then you have stories like the stories in the Arabian Nights where you don't have known authors, you have anonymous authors. And then you have myth, and it struck me sitting in a pub this evening how very eerie myth is in that it has no authors. I don't think anybody sat down and said, now I'm going to create a character called Thor and I'm going to have Loki there and it'll all end badly, but I'll work at it. No, it, it didn't happen like that. Nobody wrote this myth. It's, it's an extraordinary story that has no authors. It, it's, it's eerie to me. It's eerie to me too. It's, um, I, I keep trying to think myself back into a society where it was believed. And as you say, there's a, there's a certain suspicion that none of them, no myth has ever quite been mm. believed until you look at the Republican candidates. And, <laughs> and then um, who knows what, knows what Mr. What's it really believes. <laughs> Well, I think we'll uh, open it up to the floor now. And what I propose to do is take questions in groups of three. Uh, so if you want to put up your hand, and um, there are uh, highly skilled um, uh, stewards who will come and give you a microphone, if you could please uh, stand and, and introduce yourself. I'm particularly curious to know who you are tonight. Normally it's more... Um, exciting at you know events to do with politics, but um, because this is the literary festival, we'll, I think we'll be very curious to see how far afield we've gone, or if you're all finance uh, undergraduates. You don't look like finance undergraduates coming, to, but uh, so uh, qu questions, please. Yeah, okay. There's uh, one back here, and then one here, and then yes, and uh, so back there. So. Um, the woman in the purple. Hello, I'm Flora. Um, do you want to know what I do? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, it's the anthropologist in me. I work in publishing. I do digital marketing for a publisher. Um, I've noticed tonight you've talked a lot about ancient myths, but do you feel that myths are still being created today, and can they be viable myths if they are created in the modern world? Okay. Thank you. So uh, second question was here. So, yeah. Hi, uh, I'm Claire. Um, I describe what I do, um, social change stuff, some kind of charity level and some art and community level. Um, what I've been wondering, I've been trying to think about what's this difference between myth and story. And uh, I liked Robert Turwin, I liked what you said about there being kind of spectrum. But I wanted to get away from that spectrum and, and sort of try and see if, the, if I could pin down a difference. And it suddenly seemed to me that it seems that myth has this opening out movement and it opens out from a particular 
in order it provides um, a way of explaining or universalizing themes, ideas, um, explaining things that ev in a way that everyone will understand with one explanation. And perhaps story is a movement the other way. It's kind of closing in and narrowing down focus, particularizing, so that you can therefore talk about the feelings of the narrator or the other characters. You can introduce character, have complex and subtle characterization and interaction. And that may be why it was um, that you found those fictionalized um, retellings of the Greek myths as a child so unsatisfying because they were trying to particularize um, these characters' experiences when actually myth is not about that. It's about the opposite movement of out, out going outward. Okay, mm. yes. And then one uh, last question before I let the speakers reply. Hi, um, my name's uh, Miranda. I work for Sky News, um, not a particularly mythical organization. Um, I just wanted to say, you talked about Germanic myths and North, Norse myths, and you've even kind of mentioned in America, you know, they have this mythical business with the Republicans. Um, am I missing something, or do we not have that many English myths? And if we don't, is that because we're, the English just aren't very good at kind of passing on mythical stories and making up mythical stories? Mm. Okay. Thank you. So... Uh Oh, well, on, on English myth, uh, come to that <coughs> straight away. Um, yes, uh, that's what struck Tolkien. He thought, where, where have all our myths gone? Why hasn't England got any decent myths, uh, unlike the Norse, which he was quite keen on? Um, and, and therefore, he decided to create, of course, a kind of mythology in Lord of the Rings. Um, Tolkien's answer to where the English myths gone was quite simply the Norman conquest destroyed them. Uh, we've been artificially deprived of our legends and tales of the ancient gods. We, the, the little small snatches of stuff we know about the gods of the Saxons and earlier stuff, but it's small stuff. It doesn't amount to a proper mythology. So therefore we, we end up with this 20th century, century substitute, Tolkien's enormous novel. Um, on our modern myths being created, um, I try, for clarity, I'm trying to use myths only to refer to stories that involve gods um, and therefore I think no we're, we're not, well, not not in the western world anyway creating modern myths we are of course creating legends all the time there are lots of legends for example about famous gangsters such as Dillinger or Ned Kelly and there are also kinds of other legends they're being produced all the time you can probably find one or two in a newspaper every day of the week um, on myths opening out, unlike stories. Um, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, just occasionally you get a very odd novel like John Fowles's um, The French Lieutenant's Woman, where you get alternative endings. But in general, you, you, you're rather stuck with the novel. It, it proceeds to a single ending, whereas myths go all over the place and there are all sorts of endings to the various the stories of the various gods. And on this business of the... Yes, the, the, the uh, the elaboration of narrative, unwelcome elaboration of narrative for, to Greek myths, which Antonia hated so much. It, yes, it's a bit like these um, pop histories where you get passages like, as Richard the Lionheart opened the flap of his tent that day, he knew it was going to be a day of decision. The vultures hovered overhead. And he thought, oh, no. That's an erosion of categories. Um, thinking about myths today, for some reason, my... Mine came up with the name of Patrice Lumumba, who died and was killed, but everybody <coughs> said he hadn't died, 
and wasn't killed and he appeared all over the place and whether or not he's still appearing I don't know because he was he vanished from my newspapers a long time ago but I think a myth could begin with something like Patrice Lumumba not dying although we in the West know perfectly well that he's dead um, and that's that's more of a myth than the big gangsters really because it is a kind things could accrue to it things could grow around it you get little shrines made to people yeah. so I think you can make myths um, as to the English myths um, the Archbishop of Canterbury is very keen on the Welsh myths yeah. the Welsh have a mythology which is still very much alive um, what what I had as a child, in a way, it wasn't myth, but it was, it was a sort of structured English world. It was a sort of cross between King Arthur and Robin Hood. And both of those were, of course, within a Christian world, and they were not mythical, but um, they were English stories. I, I think Tolkien was right. I, well, I don't know that they were destroyed by the Norman Conquest. I think again it's partly something to do with the climate it's it's not extreme enough in any way to cause a myth to come about um, I suppose not all countries do have their myths I mean there isn't a Belgian mythology as far as I know <laughs> or an Australian one there's quite, a lot of, well, there's quite a lot of Australian stories of one kind and another um, as to the myth opening up and the story closing in um, I could talk about this all night and you would all get up slowly and go home. Um, there is an aspect of, going back to Bleak House, there is an aspect of Bleak House which is a myth. There's a sort of form of the nature of things onto which Dickens has hooked his imagination. He starts with this sort of huge description of mud in London and Chancery eating everybody up. And his imagination is on the scale of myth rather than what the question of very intelligently then talked about, you know, refining character mm. and being precise about human nature and motives and things. He has a world which is a mythical world in which his characters act. Then there are people at the other extreme who are only interested in precisions of characters and human relations. Um, I, I, I was thinking to myself, nobody in Dickens ever has a philosophical thought and I think this is partly because the world is a kind of myth whereas in, jo in George Eliot all the main people constantly have thoughts about the nature of things and that's a novel and not a myth but um, so Dickens is on the way towards mythology mm -hmm. from the realism of George Eliot who understood mythology very well um, maybe we can, to Patrice Lumumba, we can add Elvis Presley, probably. Yeah. And Zapata, and Pedro the Cruel, and King Sebastian of Portugal. They all vanished, but are going to turn up any day now. Mm. Yeah. And King Arthur, in oh, that And case. King Arthur, yes, mm. once and future king. Mm. Mm. Uh, so, back to the floor. Uh, yes, we've got a uh, gentleman down here, and the woman here, and then this woman here. So, yeah. Hi, my name is William. I'm a lawyer trained philosophy. Um, your reference to Bleak House opening with a, a kind of urban myth is interesting because when I think of the modern world, I guess one big contrast with the ancient and even the medieval is the centrality of the urban experience and the setting, which 
which is you know about um, um, hyperpopulations, um, um, very very fast-paced worlds, and it seems to be a non not very congenial uh, setting for the kind of myths that we all love and, and read. So I was wondering if um, what Dickens is trying to do, and perhaps actually science fiction, because science fiction, as far as I, my limited experience of it, it seems to be often set up in a hyper-urbanized, um, futuristic urbanized environment. And maybe uh, Hollywood movies and things like that are perhaps our modern day version of these kind of mythologies. Uh, would you care to comment on the setting of the modern world and how mythology, which most of the ones I love, uh, are set in a more bucolic or rural or abstract settings, mm. relate to that? Mm. Yeah, and then there's over here. Um, firstly, just a quick clarification. In Australia, the Australian Aboriginal Dreamtime stories are a very rich and systematic uh, mythic landscape. But my question is um, just to try and narrow down on this distinction that we're making between belief and non-belief. I'm wondering whether this could possibly be um, a product of the way that we maybe think in the modern world, the modern secular world, where one does you know, declare that one is an atheist or a believer. Whereas um, it kind of strikes me as odd to say that ancient peoples um, may not have actually believed in their myths when they often informed very um, you know, minute aspects of daily life and that sort of thing. And is there a different way in which um, we can understand belief in that manner? Mm. Um, hi, I'm a finance student from LSE. So Wonderful. <laughs> um, I have to point out this first because, um, please forgive me, because uh, my question is a little irrelevant from today's topic. Uh, tonight I'm here is just because once in a while when I was still in China, I was so obsessed by Mrs. Byatt's, uh book, Possession. So <laughs> I really want to ask you, what it is that inspired you to write such an amazing book. And uh, another question is, have you ever considered some other endings when completing the book? If yes, what it is that you finally choose the ending that we, we can read now? Thank you. In possession particularly? Yes, yes. <coughs> Should I start with that one? Um, um, it started, the book started with the word possession. I was sitting in the British Library and I was watching a great Coleridge scholar walking round and round the round catalogue because in those days it was in the British Museum. And I thought of her relationship with him and I thought, does he possess her or does she possess him? You know, he the ghost. In a sense, it's, it is a kind of religious book. It's about how we are possessed by the dead. I mean, in my case, particularly dead writers. Um, and then about sort of five years later, it came to me that possession also had a sexual meaning. So I thought, aha, yes, we'll have two couples of lovers, one modern and one old. And then a lot later, it occurred to me that what I was saying was that poetry was more alive, rather like... Um, Aphrodite, not um, about rather like the Venus in Ephesus, Diana in Ephesus, um, that poetry is more alive actually than people. Um, 
And so in a sense, it's a, it's a kind of playing with what myth does in the head and with what life does in the head. And it's a comedy and a tragedy. And, um, and it's, it's, it's also, it's a kind of outcry about modern scholarship, but scholarship has moved on since I wrote that book. Um, do, you, do you want to uh, take the urban experience and belief and non-belief as well? Um, well, um, well, obviously, all the myths I'm familiar with are, are not um, urban. They're not. Um, they are pastoral or they're set in forests. So, you know, it's very hard to think of urban mythology. It's not been done unless you count science fiction. And of course, that we got a lot of science fiction novels which are set in dystopian vast <coughs> cities. Um, William Gibson's Neuromancer or the Philip K. Dick novel which was the origins of Blade Runner, that kind of thing. But there are of course um, pastoral science fiction novels. It, it, it's, I mean, what Dune is not exactly pastoral but it's certainly not urban, it's set in the desert and there are hundreds, thousands of uh, post-catastrophe novels set in some kind of Arcadian countryside. Um, thinking about this atheism and, and the importance of belief for mythology, Perhaps it's not so important belief. Um, perhaps ritual is actually primary. And in ancient Greece, they didn't fret about whether they believed in the god or not. They fretted about whether they were doing the ritual properly. It, it's, it's a hard way to, for us to think about these things, but perhaps belief wasn't important. Certainly, um, in pre-modern Muslim society, they found atheism very hard to understand. Uh, when Bonaparte's troops invited, invaded Egypt, invited a lot of ulama, uh, religious scholars, to dinner, and Bonaparte's henchmen said, we're very like you Muslims, we're atheists. Um, <laughs> this went down. The, 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 the religious scholars thought, this is some new form of Catholicism we haven't heard of. Yes, do you want to address the urban experience and belief? Yes, I, I think... Um, have you read Bleak House? <coughs> well, the thing at the beginning, the, the image of chancery in the mud at the beginning of Bleak House is an image out of a work of art like Paradise Lost. I mean, whether Milton really believed in hell by the time he got into it, I don't know. But the effect on me as a reader is very similar to the effect on me of Dickens's London when it gets to be that poetic. He's talking about a state of affairs and a powerful, almost abstract destructiveness, which is in the world he is in, which he is able to make in an image so poetic that it does feel exactly Miltonic. And then, you know, in um, Our Mutual Friend, he does exactly the same with the dust heaps. Um, he, he manages to make you feel a mythical aspect to the precise calculations of the modern world. Of course, in the whole Chancery suit in, um, in Bleak House, the precise machinations of the legal world and the financial world. I mean, everything in the end comes to nothing, rather like Ragnarok. There is nothing left. Um, and it's, it's, as a narrative, it's extremely satisfactory at one level, because uh, there is no other way out of it. Um, and I think, there are, I think there are great poets and great novelists. You can't make a myth on your own, but you can make a state of mind in which you can recognize the area in which myth lived or lives. And thinking of believing myths, um, I do think the ancient Egyptians really did believe 
in life after death. Hmm. They couldn't have spent so much of their life preparing in such detail for the afterlife if they didn't believe in it. Yes, and going around that British Museum exhibition <coughs> not very long ago, got a what an strange mythology it was. So crabby, so personal. You know, it, it, it lacked, the, lacked the adventurous storytelling of the Greeks or the Norse. It was just, how do I, how do I you know, get my heart weighed the right way and how, how many servants am I going to be able to take with me into the afterlife? And it was just, what a tedious um, mythology to be stuck with. <laughs> Um, it's interesting that Bruce Lincoln, uh, who uh, teaches uh, Divinity School at the University of Chicago, has written a very interesting book on myth that came out a few years ago. And one of the things he points out in the first chapter to the book, which is on the golden age of Greece, is that mythos to the ancient Greeks meant speech of the preeminent, especially poets and kings. Uh, and it's uh, interesting to think about the, the, the ways in which our understanding, I think, I think you know, what, what you two were saying earlier, the fact that a myth is kind of unlocatable now in terms of having a, you know, a specific author. It's not by John Smith, uh, um, but that something that belongs to all of us gives us a sense of how this has changed so much. Um, right, so more, more questions. <coughs> yes, one here. And then uh, here, and um, yes, the lady here as well. So, uh, over here first. <coughs> Hello, my name's Robin. Um, I'm not convinced that you all agree what myth means. As you speak, I'm feeling that you come at it from a different angle, and I think it'd be really nice to reflect on what you said from an understanding of what you understand by myth and what you're talking about when you answer, mm. respectively. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <coughs> Hi, my name is Oat. Um, I'm a recent graduate from Central St. Martins in illustration. And basically my MA dissertation were about um, shamanism and the modern world. So I had to kind of study most of it is mythology from, from my own country, which is Thailand. <laughs> And um, kind of going back to the point where, um, and now as well, I think mythology and kind of mythicism kind of come into almost a fashion trend, and people really take on to that. So, um, in a sense, it's kind of saying myth belongs to everyone, you know. But at the same time, going back to my dissertation, when I begin, it's really totally different after I research. And all this I wanted to say is that when you're starting actually really researching myth and really understanding myth, you kind of have different perception on, on what it is and what they are. So as a, as a creative individual and as an author, as an artist even, how important it is to really understand myth? Or can you just draw links from them and kind of take um, you know, authorship of those myths in your, in your work? Yes, and then the uh, final question in this round. Here. Hello, um, I'm Heather, and I'm a, um, an English student at King's. Um, I was just wondering, you kind of touched earlier on the difference between Cinderella and Ceres, and um, the relationship between myths and fairy tales is something that, that I'm quite interested in. So I wondered if you could talk a bit more about that, because... Obviously, there are these differences, but there is a lot of crossover as well with the kind of changing, developing stories through time and the very stripped-down narratives. 
who would like to go Please first? Oh dear. Um, I, I'm not very fond of defining my terms precisely. Um, this is an academic thing. I, I notice they do it at the beginning of the articles in order to discuss this we must first define our terms and I don't. I like to think more cloudily. I, I like to have shadows and doubts in my head. But uh, if I have to come down to saying what I think myth is, I think it's stories involving the gods. It's as simple as that. Um, the I thought the original Greek meaning of mythos was just story. So did I. It's um, very interesting. Yeah. Yes. So that, that's the answer to that one. Um, on the fairy tales, um, some of them do look as though they are debased myths. The thing about fairy tales, of course, is they have a... It covers the, once you s we should be here for two hours looking at what fairy tales are. If you look at Andrew Lang's succession of coloured fairy tale books, there's very diverse material there. Uh, we've got used to thinking of fairy tales as just the suitable stuff for children, and it's got fairies in. And in fact, most fairy stories don't have fairies in them. Um, the Grimm stories are, as the name might suggest, often extremely grim. Um, the Arabian Nights gets landed as lumped in as fairy tales too. And the other thing to say is, of course, we, we take it for granted now that fairy tales are for children. Um, this was definitely not the perception in 17th and 18th century France. It was, it was not only adults, but it was the elite, the social elite and the intellectual elite who, who, who picked up on Perrault's fairy tales, and Madame Dolnoy's stories, and then the Arabian Nights. And this was imitated and followed by British courtiers and intellectuals and Danish and Japanese and so on. Uh, it's very odd the way fairy tales, like certain classic works of literature, have been slid down to be relegated to the children's shelves. Where, where am I? Um, on defining terms, I'm, I'm entirely with Robert. Somebody wrote an excellent review of this book in America last week, I think, and she wrote two wonderful paragraphs about Norse mythology. And she spent her third paragraph saying, now, is this a novel or is this not a novel? Um, why? Um, it, it, ne it never tried to be a novel. It doesn't say it's a novel. The whole attempt to define it was somehow unhelpful. Um, it's a book. And, and what I think... What is a book? Well, you see it. Um, it's got words in it, in, a, in an order, that go from beginning to end. And I feel rather like that about the word story. It covers everything. It covers the plot of a film. It covers a lie a child tells to its mother. It covers the birth of the gods and the death of the gods. Um, fairy stories, on the other hand, I am obsessed by. And I can't... Where's the question about the fairy stories? I yeah. can't um, mm. manage to work out quite why they are so different from myths. Because the Brothers Grimm <coughs> certainly thought they were collecting the ancient mythology of Germany when they collected all the fairy stories. Um, and they thought they were collecting this sort of abstract Germanic matter. And in fact, a lot of them were French stories told by people's nannies to their children. Um, but the book that amazes me really is Prop. Oh, yes. He collected motifs out of fairy stories mm. from every culture. You will find 252 different versions of Cinderella mm -hmm. from all over the world with the same little motifs. You will find the story of the woman whose husband goes to war 
and her mother-in-law kills her babies. <coughs> and she comes back from, he comes back from the war. The mother-in-law says, your wife is evil. She has killed the babies. So they cut off her hands and they put her in a boat. And some good person, some good friar at this point, comes along and puts her hands in a fountain. And they are joined to her again. Now, this story is weird and wonderful, but there are hundreds of different versions of it from hundreds of different countries. How did this happen? And there are hundreds of these stories of which there are hundreds of versions. It is something about human beings I have no understanding of at all. It amazes and delights me. But God knows how it happened. Perhaps you know. <laughs> I, I do know, but this isn't about me tonight, so I'm going uh, to take some more questions. Um, yes, over here, uh, and let's get one uh, in the back, and then the woman here as well. Hi, um, I am an ex-theology student, which is what brings me here tonight. Uh, and in studying theology, uh, it was very important to understand that in um, the original languages, scriptures uh, were much more nuanced than some of the translations allow us to understand. Um, I was wondering to what degree we can really hope to understand myths in the modern world when we've never really known their native languages as living languages, but only really known the descendants of those languages. Yeah, then... Uh, the gentleman back in the back there, yeah. Um, hello, my name's Charlie. I work at The Independent. Um, I was wanting to see if you'd like to comment on what for me is uh, quite an integral part of myth, and that is the role of uh, animals, particularly in Ragnarok. We had the wolf and the serpent. Um, and if we move the discussion into various, uh, various stories like we have, again, certain animals recur and recur again and again, and uh, perhaps whether to bring in the, the, the question about the modern world and why we find myths so hard to, 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 to bring about now, perhaps it's our separation from uh, the, the creatures we share this earth with that has, has sort of stifled our, our myth-making abilities. Yes, and then... Um the, the woman here in the kind of middle in the lovely watermelon jumper. My name's Christine. Um, I'm Sorry, I'm not sure. Is that is that on? Right. My name's Christine. Ah, there we go. Is that better? Yeah. Sorry. Um, and... Um, I suppose I'm technically retired, uh, but I uh, once long ago studied foreign literature and um, I now work in an Oxfam bookshop. Um, really my point is, relates to what the uh, our former questioner said about defining terms because it seems to me that myth has two meanings. Um, in one sense, something which by definition is not true, as in the urban myth, or it's a myth that, um, I don't know, but it's, you, come, I can't think of an example offhand. Um, on the other hand, the myth, as it's used um, by the Anglican bishops, for example, um, is... <coughs> 
something which is, in fact, by definition, true, though not literally true. Um, it's not really a question, I'm afraid, but it's mm. just something that's come, you know, this is where I'm, the discussion has led my thoughts, and I wonder if you have any comments. Mm. Okay, thank you. So, do we want to... Uh um, <coughs> I, I, coming here this evening, I was really concentrating on myth in the sense of something that some people believe that might believe was true and, and not in the pejorative sense once we <coughs> get into that area of the myth as the lie or, um, or the p political propaganda the, the, the subject becomes too vast, too cloudy and uh, it becomes unhelpful to discuss it I think on the language question the barrier we, we're at a distance from these myths so obviously that has to be true I think we're in better position with the Greek myths than we are with the Norse myths with the Norse myths we really do have problems with the transmission and one could worry about Snorri Sturluson from whom we get a lot of this stuff um, who was a Christian and may have put a Christian spin or drawn on elements which are not strictly Scandinavian to shape his version of mythology. So that is a problem. Uh, how one gets around it, you have to be very clever. I mean, as T.S. Eliot said, the only way to be a good critic is to just to be very intelligent. <laughs> Do you want to say something on the, the, the role of animals? Not really. I no. uh, just that... Um, <laughs> Just that the, the animals in Norse mythology are, are absolutely frightful. I mean, they're, they're, they're not cuddly at all. It's um, I worry about the animals. I worry about living in a world which is... I, I did a dialogue once with Steve Jones, the geneticist, and he was perfectly cheerful about it. I, we, we were talking about having entered the Anthropocene age, where it is, in fact, Anthropos, which controls the weather, the climate, where the animals live, whether they can survive. And he said, well, we've entered it, you know, that's, there's nothing to be done about it. But I grieve terribly, and um, part of this book, which we haven't really talked about, is a, a sort of cry about all the fish that are disappearing, one after the other after the other, the small spaces in which creatures can live, the destruction of plants. I am happy to say it has been shortlisted for a climate week prize for an artistic work um, today, so, so um, somebody has noticed. But, um, and they make you very sad, the fairy stories in which, you know, the, the men turn into animals and the animals turn into men, and you meet the three helpful animals on the track. And also the sense that I had even as a child reading particularly my German book about Ragnarok, that my ancestors had lived in fear of the animals in a world in which they were small and they belonged with the small animals and you had to watch out. And I found this, I found this the kind of ancestry I wanted to have. Um, and I, I grieve every day. The, the flocks of starlings you see now, if you're lucky enough to see one, are about a sixteenth of the size of the flocks of starlings I saw all the time when I was little. You can go up to Yorkshire and you'd be lucky to see a plover. And my French translator said to his wife, look, look, a dragonfly. And then he nearly burst into tears. He said, I wouldn't have thought that worth commenting on 20 years ago. It's, it's as though things are going. And I got this one image of the, um, what's it called, that thing in the sea? <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, the, the big surf. <coughs> yeah, the, the great big sort of sea of plastic as large as Texas. Oh, okay. It's got a wonderful name which I've temporarily forgotten. And no, it's, okay. it's, it's called the plastic something. Somebody must know the answer. Um, anyway, um, it'll, it'll bug me now. But there it is, swirling round and round in the ocean. And when Tor Heyerdahl first crossed the ocean on his raft, he was dreadfully upset to see a few plastic beakers all the way across the ocean. There was no bit that wasn't, hadn't got human beings having just dropped things into it. But now it's bigger than Texas, and it's sort of swirling round and round. Mm. That's, that's, that's in my mind as a mythic object. It's mm. the myth of the Anthropocene age, mm. and I, I don't respond positively to it. Mm. I think it's called Long Island. It's off the... <laughs> <laughs> near, near New York City. Um, it's a beautiful word. Uh, it's interesting. I mean, picking up on the point about translation... Trash vortex. No. It's called the trash vortex. <laughs> now that sounds both ancient and modern. Yeah. <laughs> certainly the, mythic. Yeah. Um, the point about translation, I think, is um, interesting. Again, I, I just happen to have a quote from Claude Levi Strauss here. Let me. It, go, it goes to the point about um, the clarity of what, what what a myth is. He says, "Myth is the part of language where the formula traditore traditore, the translator is the traitor." reaches its lowest truth value. And I think that plays back into what you were saying about the amazing work of Vladimir Propp in that these, you do find the Cinderella myth in so many different societies. And th this is the kind of lowest common denominator of the mental map that makes up humanity and the issues of kinship, love, justice, aspiration, which feed into all of those societies. So I just wanted to get Levi Strauss in one more time. But uh, I'll take uh, an another round of questions. Yes, here, down in front, this here, and then, yes, the gentleman here in the blue. <coughs> so here uh, first. Hi. My name's Becky, and I work for English Heritage. And in what we do, we're very deeply concerned with place, um, with, with where things actually happened and went on. And there's some sort of instances of that creating a, a more modern sort of four or 500 year old mythology, such as that Tintagel with the Arthurian associations, or very modern as at Stonehenge, where people create their own mythologies around a sort of an imagined version of the past. Um, and it happens in religions too, obviously places like Lindisfarne or Mecca, Jerusalem, Teze. And I just wondered what potency you think is added to myths when you actually have a sense of where they happened, when the anchor that you hold is the place in which they are set. Um, and how important you think it is that we understand the place where the, the myths have come from in order to be able to appreciate them um, and continue to enjoy them. Yeah, and uh, the woman here, yeah? Hello, um, I'm, well, I'm from the LSE and I'm, well, I'm not a finance major, but I'm an economist, if that helps oh. at all. Um, That's okay. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Um, so this 
it's a it's a very quick note because we because we we were talking about uh, about mod, about modern myths and, um, and 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 how and whether gods grow from from the belief that is invested in them. Um, so I got to thinking about the cult of celebrity, and it, there's a there's a quick note um, in the south of India, which does not lack for religion or mythology, or celebrity really. Um, there are um, there are temples built to uh, famous actors and politicians. Mm. So, so it's so it is possible to, for myths to grow from the from the outside in. And uh, also. A a very, very quick question, more about um, myth generation in, uh, in, in in the modern world. I think it's e it's easier now <coughs> for 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 opinions to agglomerate, if not if not information. So there's no, there's a, there's a wealth of conspiracy theories. There always has been, um, but. For, I mean, for for instance, uh, Elvis keeps cropping up. But do you think that there's something archetypal about the form that that myth takes? When we think that Elvis doesn't die, we can think we can think we can think of the we can think of the resurrection. We can think of the of, of Ahasuerus as the wandering Jew, and so on and so forth. Mm. Do you think that the form of the myth doesn't alter? Mm. So, and the um, third question in this round, yeah, uh, the gentleman over here in the in the blue, just here. Hello. Um, yes, my name is Brian. I'm completely unrelated. I work in cancer research. Um, my curiosity to talk, um, someone mentioned that humans like to tell stories. And uh, relating to the title of Myths for the Modern World, my thought was perhaps um, it's a very slowly progressing form of evolution where early myths were, were perhaps initiated with the form to explain natural phenomena and as understanding developed, and therefore there were alternative explanations given, then religion took over, and there was a more omnipotent being, and therefore it sort of argued any sort of alternative explanation. And now as people are perhaps moving away from religions, urban mythology, and there's a void for something else for people to take off with that might be more compelling, more interesting, more fantastical as the future myths. And as I said, so perhaps religion will become a mythology in 100 years, 1,000 years, in some future time. Hmm. So who would like to start, Rana? Oh, a little bit lost. Um, the I was thinking about um, film stars <coughs> and TV personalities as the closest thing we have to the gods today. And, and like the Norse and the Greek gods, they behave extremely badly. They, they steal, they rape, they provide stories. That, that's their function, and it, it, it's, it's quite a close analogy. Um, on the gods being conjured up to explain natural phenomena, I, I, that was the thing I read when I had my children's encyclopedia back in the 50s. My understanding is that that kind of theory for the way gods came about um, is now discredited, for whether rightly or wrongly, I don't know. The question of whether Christianity could become a mythology if people cease to believe it is a very interesting one. And then I asked myself, uh, how would this play as a mythology? And can we present, would we, in 
several centuries in the future, be presenting the Old Testament God as a God that's behaving very badly, uh, like the film stars and everybody else. I mean, for instance, uh, providing those bears to eat the children that are teasing Elijah, things like that. You, you could mount quite a case against the Old Testament God. And, of course, you could present the New Testament and the, the sacrifice of Jesus as being a kind of replay of the, the story of Boulder and, and his death and, and, and the beginnings of the end of Asgard. It's, these things are possible. It, it's, it's interesting to play around with. In fact, I may one day play around with it. Yeah. <laughs> what about place? Anything on place? Oh, place? No, I, not really. I, I suspect uh, the thing I'm rather conscious of from what I've read of Arthurian legends is, is the way that places compete to be the, the, uh, the myth comes first and then places try to stake a claim on the story and say oh it was definitely here. Camelot was here Saras was there and so on um, because there's money in it of course <laughs> it's like pilgrimage shrines um, I feel very double about place I don't um, I don't go to places to get feelings from them of what was once there. Um, and because I'm a kind of purist and a scholar, I think you shouldn't go building modern rare shows representing what was never there and never will be there, which I wondered if you were. Um, there are places I mind terribly about, like Dungeness. Um, not not really because of the history. Well, yes, because of the history, because of the nature of it as England's only desert. And now they're going to sort of start running lorries across it and build an airport at Lyd. And then one does feel that one should be looking after one's bit of the earth. Um, I, I once went to a whole session of a, a university seminar on how people had gone to the houses of the writers. I only do that by accident. <laughs> you know, if I happen to be there, I go, but I've, I've never made a pilgrimage. I, I, I like the books, but I think that's slightly narrow in me. Um, what were the other? Oh, yes, the Indian question. Um, this <coughs> book was reviewed. There's an Indian edition of Ragnarok, which isn't called Ragnarok because the Indians quite rightly pointed out that nobody would know what that word meant. So in India, it's called the end of the gods, and then it's got Ragnarok, I think, in brackets. But I was sent a most interesting Indian review of it because it began in a very sharp sort of way. It said, you know, there are many myths in the world. And in India, we have some true myths and some untrue myths. Ah. Mrs. Byatt's book is all about untrue myths, Christianity and Norse myths. And I suddenly saw I was being criticized by somebody with a set of beliefs. I had no idea what he or she believed because he or she didn't say. But he or she was absolutely sure that there were true myths that you believed. And I have had the same reaction a bit from American reviewers. You know, they think I am not understanding that Christianity is true. And this, of course, is how they should be reacting. It's, it's very, very interesting. But it, um, it causes you to sort of try to imagine, I, I suppose. Um, I've written down new scientists in the answer to the last question. Um, Explain natural phenomena. Ah, natural phenomena. Um, in one of the versions we get told is that um, science is replacing mythology. And as Richard Dawkins, I think, rather wonderful book for... Um, I gave it to my seven-year-old grandson, but I think it's for teenagers. And it 
explains how the stars came about in terms of a myth, and then it explains it in terms of science, and the myth is nice, and the science is wonderful, and um, which is how I rather feel about descriptions of the world at the moment. Um, it's the science that's amazing, and in the Anthropocene age, the books written by scientists telling me things I didn't know give me infinitely more excitement than literary books on myth. On the other hand, I take the new scientist, and the scientists are scared stiff of somehow being pushed out. They don't write. I mean, they do write with glee and glory about what they're discovering and how the shape of the world has changed because they now know this. And some of the time, I think, I'm not sure they really do know this, but at least they keep arguing. But they have a steady stream of agitated articles about how a kind of religious political enemy is going to knock them over and stop their stories from being told. And they publish um, articles on the anti-climate change movement. Um, and this is one of the dramas of our time, really. It's very, very interesting, even if not entirely hopeful. Um, but I do, I do love reading sort of scientific accounts of the shape of things. And this is the thing, I, perhaps this is the last thing I have to say, really. In my lifetime, writing about science has become as exciting as writing about history or religion or literature <coughs> was when I was young. When I was a teenager, there weren't books about science that made your hair stand on end. And there probably were, but I wouldn't have understood them. Now there's an enormous range of brilliant writing about science, which has the same effect on me, really, as reading Asgard and the Gods did when I was five or six. Could be a new series for Canongate, maybe. Um, yeah, I, but we'll uh, tell them. <laughs> um, we are uh, out of time. Thank you all for your questions, and please join me in thanking A.S. Byatt and Robert Irwin.